You're listening to Graphic Novel Explorers Club Podcast, an audio book club. Greetings, Explorers. I'm one of your hosts, Dennis, joined by... Aubrey. And... Johnny. Today, we are discussing The Good Asian, Volume 1, by writer Pornsak Pichet-Shot and artist Alexandre Tefengi. We hope you have read today's title because all three of us have read the book, so beware. Spoilers ahead. Become an official explorer by joining our Patreon group. Explorers get early access to episodes, specials, polls, discussions, and other extras. Graphic Novel Explorers Club is available wherever fine podcasts are found, including YouTube. So be sure to subscribe and leave a review. That's right, Explorers. We're looking at The Good Asian Volume 1, an Edison Hark mystery, which makes it sound like there's going to be more of these down the road. Do you guys read mystery novels very much or? A little bit. Yeah, a little bit. I used to be really into them as a kid. Oh, really? Uh, I was definitely, yeah, the Nancy Drew Hardy Boys sort of thing as a kid. I read the um, the Easy Rollins series. I haven't read very many mystery novels. I love, I love like Agatha Christie movies, at least movies based on her books. Uh, I was a big fan of the Maltese Falcon. So I'm sort of invested in noir, I guess, without thinking about it. Oh, I categorize you because you said mystery and I categorize mystery and noir into two different categories. Like mystery, I think of as like Agatha Christie and then noir is like Maltese Falcon, the big sleep and stuff like that. Okay. Yeah, I guess more noir, noir movies. Way to throw us off. (laughs) (laughs) I did like the long goodbye starring Elliot Gould uh, Mm -hmm. from the 70s. It was a good one. And of course, the big Lebowski. (laughs) Classic noir. (laughs) It is a noir movie. like we said, writer is Portsack Pichoshote. I think I said that wrong. And uh, he joins the pantheon of mispronounced names. Artist Alexandre Tefinki, same. Alexandra, you're automatically in the pantheon of mispronounced names. Colorist Lee Luffridge. Uh, Lou Ridge, maybe. Also, this is just an all-star cast of mispronounced names. <laughs> Letter and designer Jeff Powell. And a historical consultant Grant Din who is a genealogist. I looked this guy up. And there's a lot of historical stuff at the end of this book and scattered throughout it. Oh, for sure. And I appreciate the fact that it's presented in a a great accessible way without being a wall of text. But at the same time, what I appreciate, because it has so much historical information that it's trying to pass along, there's a whole thing in the back of the trade where it actually goes into the, the actual facts. So you don't actually have to look up a separate Wikipedia page if you don't want to. It actually lays it all out there, which I think is really accessible and, and very interesting to learn about. And yeah, I was very happy to learn that Pornsock was uh, a fellow Thai American. And uh, I'm noticing a lot more Thai people being involved in, in some of the media I consume, which I, I find exciting. Um, there's a cartoon on Disney Plus called Amphibia, which is uh, the main character is actually a, a Thai American gal and it's written by a Thai American. And so it's it's really great to see, you know, some more Asian representation. Hell yeah. Noise. Yeah. And plus, last episode we reviewed Miss Marvel. Also written by a Middle Eastern America, or it was co-created by a Middle Eastern America and about Pakistani. And um, yeah, get some uh, Asian representation here, finally. <laughs> uh, what was that? Where was I? Where was I? Oh, yeah. So this this is a fairly new book. It was published by Image Comics in 2021, I think in the spring of 2021. It's set in 1936, 
And our main character is Eddie Hark. He's a Chinese-American cop investigating the disappearance of Ivy Chin, a young woman who was employed by the wealthy Caraway family of San Francisco. We learn Eddie's ties to the Caraway family, his ties to the Chinese community living in Chinatown, and just how much self-loathing he has for his role in upholding America's xenophobia at the beginning of the 20th century. Our main characters are uh, Eddie or Edison Eddie Hark. He is one of the first Chinese-American cops in the nation, and his mother worked for the Caraway family when Eddie was a child. And after she died, he was left in their care. And then there's Mason and Frankie Caraway, the patriarch and son of a family that owns a sugar company based in Hawaii. Mason is in declining health when the story picks up. And Frankie and Eddie have a estranged sibling relationship even though they're not related by blood, they grew up together. There's Detective O'Malley, a goon cop working in Chinatown. His son died of an opium overdose in Chinatown, and he is out to get everybody. And then Terrence Chang, a lawyer, Chinese lawyer, seems to also be like one of the first lawyers in the community who is representing the six companies, which is like a... What's a community group that essentially forms an ad hoc unofficial government for the Chinatown area. And the building they operate out of is actually in Chinatown. You can still go to it this day, to this day, and it seems to also be still be sort of a community goodwill organization. It's on Stockton Street, San Francisco. The the phone area is actually a bank now. That one with the pagoda looking mm. building. Is oh a, really? Is I've I've passed by it a million times going to Chinatown. So yeah. Oh cool. Cool. Right. Did you guys know that Eddie is based on a real detective? Oh, no, I didn't know that. A Hawaiian detective. What was his name? Chong Apana. Yeah, he was from Honolulu. He was actually the basis for Charlie Chan, which Charlie Chan obviously was a gross misrepresentation of Asians. But regardless, uh, yeah, so it was actually based on a real person. That was pretty cool. That's where Eddie's uh, based out of when the story picks up. He's coming back from Honolulu to figure out where Ivy's gone missing. Mason, the, the patriarch of the family, is in love with her or something, infatuated, something's going on. And when she leaves, um, Mason goes into, has like a stroke or something like that. So, Charlie Chan was bad. I, I think I was under the mistaken impression that Charlie Chan was written by Asian writers. Is that not the case? Well, the representation, the representation in film was... They had an actual white actor doing yellow face. Oh, boo. And, and, and doing the real stereotypical, like... Bad accent. Right. Yeah. If you watch... Ugh, that's horrible. If you watch one of my favorite films, Death by Murder, there's a version of Charlie Chan in there. It's, 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 a, it's a take on Charlie Chan. It's a parody. But it's basically accurate to how they represented Asians back then. Got it. Mm. But the book series, like the original book series is is written by Asian writers, right? Then they just made it racist for the movies? Yeah, I don't know. No, I, 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 know, I do know about the films, but yeah, I wasn't aware until much later that they were actually a book series. Oh, maybe not. Maybe I completely misunderstood. Yeah, it looks like it was written by uh, Wait, yeah. Earl Durr, Durr Biggers. Oh, yeah. But he seems to be Caucasian-American. The, okay, the book that I have is Charlie Chan, The Untold Story of the Honorable Detective and His Rendezvous with American History by Yunte Wang. So I, I was thinking of the story about the story. <laughs> it's gotcha. the book I was thinking of. <laughs> My bad. 
But yeah, there, you could tell they did a just a ton of research for this story. It's pretty amazing. Well, yeah, I really appreciate it. I mean, I don't know Porn Sock's, like, you know, heritage. I mean, obviously, he identifies as a Thai American, but it's it's great to see people doing things like hiring, you know, historical consultants, in some cases, you know, other types of sensitivity readers in order to, you know, write a story that addresses the issues of perhaps minorities that they're not, you know, part of, but are trying to tell their stories, but not trying to do some sort of stereotypical write-up of, of the characters themselves. So yeah, I really appreciate that. Have you guys ever been to Angel Island? It starts off, the book I should note, starts off with uh, Hark, you know, in Angel Island, mistakenly assumed to be a foreign immigrant. And so he's put there accidentally. I actually took a trip to Angel Island as a kid. I didn't realize the significance that it was basically, you know, our, our port of entry for California in terms of immigration. It was the West Coast Ellis Island. It was like a port of entry concentration camp from what yeah. from what the right. back of the book was describing. Well, and yeah, I, I mean, honestly, you know, through his research of this, he discovered a lot of history that I only, you know, recently, probably within the, ten, the past 10 years discovered regarding California's discrimination practices against Asians. In fact, there was one law I wasn't even aware of that I discovered maybe about four years ago. That involved, I think it was passed in the 1940s. They don't address it at all, I think, in this book. But in the 1940s, it was actually banned for Asians to marry a white person. And it wasn't repealed until the 60s that an Asian could marry yeah, a white person. That was a common law for any, I think, throughout the nation. That, that was that movie Love. It was about the couple whose last, the husband's last name was Love. Minorities weren't allowed to marry Caucasian people until, it wasn't legal really until the 60s like late 60s. So wild. Yeah, because the books really it goes it starts off on Angel Island. And he like the characters got a lot of self loathing because people assume because he's well, I guess it's it all fits under the a cab. Uh, because he's a Chinese cop that he's gonna help the Chinese people out Chinese Americans out. And he's he doesn't at all. Most of the time, he's actually just acts as like a a way for the Caucasian cops to get in to the community so then they can just fuck with people. And he immediately lets someone down like he does throughout the book. He lets this kid down who thinks he's going to be there to help him out and show him how to make art. And he just bells on the kid. What if the world of the dead was just a plane ride away? Quest Friends is a supernatural role-playing podcast where five best friends explore the fun of everyday life in the afterlife. Average annoyances spiral into fantastical adventures inspired by cartoons like Gravity Falls and The Owl House. Listen to our ghostly adventures at questfriendspodcast.com or by searching Quest Friends on your favorite podcasting app. My name is T2756. Would you like to have sex with me now for money? Worst Movies Ever Played is back with three new VHS movies for your ears. Sextipede, you're alive again. How I've missed you. Anything can happen in this actual play RPG podcast, and we mean anything. You didn't think you could go to Texas Instruments without murdering someone, did you? Subscribe to Worst Movies Ever Played wherever you get your podcasts. There's one point of the story that is very important that I'm kind of confused on, and maybe I didn't read this this part, but 
So he comes from Honolulu, right? Because obviously his inspiration. So he's a Honolulu cop. But how does he have any jurisdiction or authority or anything in San Francisco? It almost seems like, oh, he flashes his badge. Oh, you're a cop. Like if I saw someone from Florida, hey, I'm a Florida sheriff. I was like, yeah, okay. So what? (laughs) (laughs) So it's just weird to me that, you know, the police force works with him. Like he's just like fully integrated, like as if, oh, yeah, you have all the authority of being a San Francisco cop even though you're basically from Honolulu. It's just weird to me. Like it it almost seems like they give him, you know, they they make him a member of the team. I didn't even catch that part. Where, where did it say that in the book? I didn't. Well, cause he, he comes over from Honolulu. It seems like he, whatever happened between Mason and Eddie, when he was younger, when he wound up slapping him, he runs away, goes to Honolulu, but then he's he comes back when Mason is sick and Ivy Chin has gone missing, and so he's flashing his badge around in San Francisco. So, hmm. yeah, I'm not sure if he was a cop before he left or he became a cop in Honolulu, or maybe they're just like you've got a badge, you've got jurisdiction everywhere. I don't know. Yeah, I totally missed that whole storyline somehow. But I think that I think that might be the case. Like he was a cop before he left, and then went. It's also never explained the scar on his face he's got right. that well, I, like, I assume James- that's a that's opening some sort of flashback eventually that will happen yeah, yeah, yeah. too they might be tied together somehow all right well so yeah then we cut from angel island we cut to basically detective o'malley beating a suspect to try to find the location of the missing lady ivy chen and so hark is sort of sitting back watching all of this and like you said johnny you know the, the chinese americans were kind of in shock to see a Chinese cop, but he wasn't helping them. And he's, they assumed that he was going to like advocate for them or something like that. And he just sits back as, as Detective O'Malley beats a suspect and throws a bunch of slurs out there, which, you know, it's, it's funny. They use the word, and I, I'm guessing you guys don't have any experience with this, but they use the word Oriental a lot. And it, it, it hit me really weird because growing up, that's the word my parents used a lot. So I didn't necessarily mm-hmm. see oriental is bad but then you start there was a shift i assume it's kind of like black african-american you know those shifts in what the 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 particular minority felt was appropriate you know how they wanted to be identified and for my parents they didn't mind being called oriental so when they threw that word out there in the book it was a bit of a shock for me because i you know i don't normally regard myself as oriental because it's like an othering word but it was interesting to me because, yeah, it made me realize, oh, yeah, back then that was kind of how they identified themselves. But there were also some other Asian derogatory terms, coolies and such that I do recall uh, remembering either being called or hearing in the background. Uh, Someone called up. you a coolie one mm-hmm. time? Holy well, shit. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, I grew up with pretty much a diverse group of people, but I did know a couple of full on white supremacists in school and so yeah they they were very homophobic and racist damn it it didn't really surprise me but yeah i mean it was interesting to hear those terms thrown around it it it, i didn't feel it too gratuitous i felt it, it added a bit of authenticity to the time period so i mean i guess content warning if you're not prepared for that but i thought it it was pretty well handled in terms of kind of giving a real authenticity to the uh, book without being so oppressive that it's like, geez, he's saying it like every other time. Well, they use a lot of like 
noir films speak in this too. So I think it, you know, it's it's definitely the writing. They're using the language of that era and the genre. I don't think it's done to hurt anybody. It's just right. showing like, hey, that's how people referred to Asian Americans back then. Well, I think I well, I, I agree with Dennis that I think there's a good balance because I think it was definitely toned down from how they actually would have been talking, which oh, is fine because sure. yeah. like we don't need reality, just like a sprinkle, right. and we and we lets us know like, oh yeah, we know how they were talking about yeah, because they dropped the c word in there several times, you know, right? The, the, the yeah. white detective drops the c word in there several times, and also during this scene we get. Uh, a little bit of, and I like how they introduce this, which is Hark's power, quote unquote. It's basically his CSI vision ability. You get to see how he sees clues. So it does these little red boxes around certain thing that, things that he's picking up on. And sometimes he explains it in his uh, internal monologue. Sometimes he doesn't, but it gives the reader clues as to what he's looking at. And so I kind of like that. I mean, it's, it's sort of futuristic CSI-like you know, computer enhance. <laughs> I think it's just shown what is what has caught his eye because that's established in the beginning when he's illustrating with that kid at the camp. Well, it's not a camp. It's a jail. <laughs> Processing jail. <laughs> they, uh, you know, he says he's got an eye for things and he always notices stuff. So I think, yeah, it's, I don't think it's like, I don't think he's actually seeing red. It's just. Oh, no. I, I mean, I say quote unquote power is that this is basically the kind of gimmick that they're doing, that they're introducing to when you see it later on, you understand what's going on. But he does, with within within being an ACAB, he does try to like protect people because he gives up when, the, when they do that heroin bust or the opium bust, he throws the dad under the, the bus to protect... The, the his wife and son in the house like he gives them up because he mm -hmm. knows there's something more going on there probably that someone doesn't have proper documents and citizenship so he's like well i could choose the lesser of two evils and i'll give up the dad you know so it's it's really he it's a complicated character like he does shitty things while also doing trying to be protective of the community I mean, I, I would say this is probably very common among, among anyone trying to work within the system, especially law enforcement, I would say, but anyone trying to work within the system and especially that time period where you're trying to better your people, you're trying to rise above, not just, it's not a selfish thing per se, where you're trying to rise above and, and be, you know, better than everyone else, but you're trying to raise your community, protect your community, but you have to work within the confines of the society you, you live in. And so how much do you push that at the risk of being ejected and basically losing that power so that you can't help anyone or working within the system and sort of doing that balance where, yeah, I can't help this person, but I can't help that person. And by doing some good, I can at least rationalize why I'm doing some bad. And it, it, I'm sure it's a very tough internal struggle that a lot of people to this day struggle with when they're entering in to the system, whether it be law enforcement or what have you, where they're, they're trying to make a difference. You know, you, you, you can say, well, just screw it all. But then if you don't have any representation, then you really give it up to the other side. And so you have to have people in there, but then to maintain that purity. I don't even know if he wants to be a cop. It seems like he, his true calling is art. 
and I, I'm like, I'm curious how he became a cop. Like, if in Volume Two you find out like what pushed him into being a, a cop. I think the motivation is the murder of his mother. Yeah, for sure. Just at one point, in response to what Dennis was saying, at one point he has a line where he says, "If you something like if you want to change things from within, you have to be a rat." And so that sort of explains his motivation. But yeah, I absolutely think he got into police work because of the murder of his mother. And I bet the scar is involved, too. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, and I I forgot exactly where in the book it, he starts talking about this, but it really hit home for me where, you know, your parents, as as a child of immigrants, you know, your parents really push you to be Americanized. Oh, it's I think it's when he was describing how neat and clean and perfect Terrence Chang is like Terrence Chang's hair and appearance is, you know, super clean cut and Americanized. And that's the goal of your immigrant parents. They don't want you to be seen as other. They don't want you to be discriminated against because of your accent, because of how you look and posture. Also, Terrence Chang is trying to fit in as a straight man when he's actually a gay man. So I think there's like a double Right. Well, we don't that he he doesn't know that, and at least initially, when he's he's describing that, he discovers that later when he he finds the developed blackmail photos. But yeah, uh, it's 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 a struggle where you're trying to kind of honor your parents. Like your parents gave up a lot to come to this country, gave up a lot, or working hard, long hours in order for you to become an American. And so, if you don't then you're almost dishonoring your your entire family and their their struggles to just get you here. And so there's a lot of weight in terms of trying to honor your heritage and fit in. Well, and that's a thread throughout the whole thing with like the six what are they called the six company, the six companies. Six companies. How yeah. they're all their whole thing is like we have to come up, you know, we have to all work together to to improve our image so that Americans accept us that, you know, just that shitty double-edged sword there. Like you have to lose yourself to fit in. Yeah. And that whole thing, it makes me so sad because it makes total sense, but also the idea that you could ever do that, like that you could ever be enough to override America's racism. You won't, no matter how much money you have, no matter how much you fit into this cookie cutter image of what an american is supposed to be you'll never be seen as the as as just normal you'll always be seen as other because of the just inherent racism in everything in america which the back of the book also goes into like the long history of how our it was all founded on that like people who weren't white weren't seen as as human <laughs> and about every 20 years like they they have a they list all the different immigration policies that have been enacted mm -hmm. And it's roughly about every 20 years, 30 years, some fear of others, some xenophobia. They blame job loss on other people coming in or you're not getting paid enough because others are coming in. And like every 30 years or so, some shady politician enacts something. We saw it most recently with uh, the Trump presidency, with immigration policy changes and, and banning Muslims from coming into the, not all Muslims, but. A majority of Muslim countries, you know, have majority of Muslim religion in their population, um, were were banned from traveling into the country. It's just this rampant fear of others. I wish people would recognize, like, 
there is generally a consensus that like Nazis are bad, especially uh, except within, you know, the communities of Nazis, obviously. But <laughs> but people I mean, people throw the word around as like Nazi is like the worst villain you can be. But I wish people recognize that that's literally what they did. That's literally how Hitler did his shtick is to just demonize Jewish people as the reason you can't get a job. And like, that's just the classic way that you start a genocide, that you that you other a group of people and you you get into power based on that kind of kind of platform. That's what we've been doing exactly the same thing the whole time to the point where the Nazis actually looked to the United States for tips on how to be better Nazis. <laughs> and we think we're better and we're not. Well, and it, what's interesting, too, is this is a snapshot in time in terms of society where this is before Asians become the quote unquote model minority. So they're still the super other. And so it isn't until later that they're repurposed and packaged to, to be this shining example, so to speak, that you're supposed to be, which is just to cause infighting within minority groups. But it, mm -hmm. it, it just proves that, you know, the, they weren't always viewed like that in the past. And in fact, you know, much like uh, recent immigrants, uh, like Johnny pointed out, they were the scapegoats in terms of the reason why you don't have a job, the reason why we're in you know, a depression, et cetera. So, yeah. But yeah, going back to the book, we cut to Hark going to the Caraway Mansion, uh, meeting with Mason and his son, Frankie. It's basically divulged that they're, they're looking for this Ivy Chen, who was a maid upstairs. That is implied, right, Johnny, that he may, she may have had a relationship with the elder Mason. She's a 25-year-old. Well, it sounds like Mason had a, feelings for her and then we later find out spoiler that frankie and ivy actually had romantic feelings and kissed and mason is so powerful like that, this is the thing their daughter that he also has a daughter who this seems like maybe eddie and the daughter had some sort of relationship in the past romantic relationship mason is so powerful that ivy and frankie immediately realize like oh this was a mistake we can't do this and Maybe that's why she left. Don't know. Oh, one thing I was going to say earlier, I forgot. So in his, in Eddie's ability to notice things, he later in trying to track down Ivy finds a friend of hers that they got. It's really cool the way he can track things down. Like he winds up going to this one person and then he, that person winds up taking him to a tailor. And then the tailor winds up revealing some information it, it, like that part of the noir storytelling Pornsack did like tremendous job of just like following threads, having yeah. any follow threads. But the friend has red braids in her hair. And I, I thought, was that something he was noticing? Like we were supposed to notice through him? Or was that just coincidental she was wearing? Because there's not, the colors in this are sometimes muted. And that red braid in her hair was very vibrant. That's a good point. I, I think totally, because I think they're going to end up in a relationship later i'm forgetting the name of that character i'm gonna look it up does anyone remember lucy lucy fan lucy okay yeah yeah i bet you anything that was on purpose because you're right there's not a lot of vibrant colors and not a lot of, like red it seems like was exclusively used to show what's what's catching eddie's eye and then it's on lucy i mean yeah i, I go back and forth just critiquing the art on whether or not i like the color choices i do it's a lot of brown a lot of brown and when you do see color it's amazing when they eventually go to the nightclub there there's like i think it in real life it turns out to be a two-page 
panel. Yeah, splash page. But it's amazing. I mean, it's vibrant. It's it's really it really pops. It really shows the energy of this cabaret nightclub. And so I, I appreciate that. But yeah, there's so much brown that when you do see the colors, like, wow. I think that's to reflect his view of the world. Like he's an unhappy, this is a really unhappy character. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just like an artistic choice of like how he sees things. Because when he does see that vibrancy in the nightclub, it, it, like it awakens something in him. I, and I would, I would concur be, now that you mention it, because there's a point where before he enters the nightclub, the Jade Castle, he spots, which I think you find out later is at least two prostitutes. And uh, I really like that scene where, you know, it kind of invoked some sort of lust in him. And so it cut to different, you know, parts of like the lips and, and everything of the ladies. And those were really colorful as well. And you can tell that evokes some kind of emotion in him. And so, yeah, those colors popped a lot more than the rest of the pages. I will say that scene is one that I take issue with. Not the not that he was like looking at their lips and shit, but the fact the the dialogue then and it's a very classic noir thing. So I was like, okay, noir trope, where he says something along the lines of like, oh, women, my weakness, they're gonna destroy me. Like, you know, it's that general vibe. That's not what he says, but it's like, oh, it's because of women that bad things happen to me is essentially what he's saying. And I hate that shit. <laughs> you're in you're in control of yourself, dude. Partially, like, I was wondering if they were implying, like, white women specifically, because mm, that's a white that's lady. That's more valid. <laughs> See, I think that was part of it, because I, I got, a, it was almost like, um, this is a callback to a super early episode of the podcast, Shortcomings, where the main character in that, who's Japanese-American, gets called out by his friends for, for saying, like, you know, you, you have a thing for white women. It's like mm. white guys who have fetishism for Asian women. You know, it's right. Mm. I, I, I'm curious if it's more that like it's. Mm. Well, because he he's very interested in fantasizes when he actually sleeps with that very particular prostitute, Victoria. So. And it's all vibrant colors when he's sleeping with her. So he has very specific tastes. <laughs> <laughs> and it could be a way that makes him feel like I fit in. You know, like I'm sleeping with white women. No, absolutely. That's another, I mean, you know, how do you unpack the onion of, of, of self-loathing when, in terms of, of race, that's a, a thing is like, do you, are you actually interested in that woman because you're just inherently interested or is it some sort of way of seeking the American dream, quote unquote, and having a white wife, girlfriend is a way of obtaining it. So it's complicated. Yeah, exactly. It's probably more intermixed, to be honest. Yeah. And that, and that's where like it, it circles back around to what I was saying, because absolutely you can't really unpack your genuine attraction if you loathe yourself and everything about yourself and your history yeah. and you haven't unpacked your history. But it does ultimately come down to choice, like right. making it about like he it's the white woman's fault that he's right. has to sleep with them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I understand like it's a really good storytelling device. Like it really gives us a good picture of this character. And I totally get what you're saying, Aubrey, in terms of like, I'm just helpless. If she wasn't so sexy. Yeah. You know, it's her fault that I'm attracted, not that I have the ability to control my urges sort of thing. So, yeah, it's totally the it's the equivalent of when uh, the Thunderbirds in Greece have to bite their knuckles when a pink lady walks by. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to bring up Thunderbirds and pink ladies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Overall, man, this book was so good. I'm. This, I, no wonder it's gotten tons of accolades. I, I'm just yeah blown away. I can't wait to read volume two. This book was so good. Me too. 
Well, yeah, and I just did a little bit of looking into because honestly, Pornsock is sort of new to me. And apparently he has another series of comic books. One was like Infidel. Yeah, Infidel, which I think is wrapped up. Yeah, it's and it was highly rated. He's also written for TV. And so, yeah, amazing writing. The art by the French artists is really good. I enjoy it. I, I, I thought things were conveyed re- really well. I enjoyed the fight scenes that involved the hatchet man. Yeah, we didn't even get into that that, that yeah. character. Turns out to, well, we won't spoil it. Read it, like who the character turns out to be. I'm, I'm really curious how that ties back into the family and uh, the, the caraways and the community. And he's praying, this hatchet man is preying upon an old triad war that really happened in Chinatown up the west coast from like seattle down to san francisco it was happening this tong battle he's like playing on this character is playing on um chinese superstitions superstitions around this like legend i should say superstition but the legend of these like gangsters that have been he's sort of like candy man yeah (laughs) but the gangs were real like they terrorized the the chinese community and and then about 10 years before this they had been kind of driven out of san francisco well, the Tongs, which is basically a brotherhood and is associated with crime, that was still a problem well into recent times. So that's not something that went away. What did they call them in Hardboiled? What, were they triad, that one? I triad. No, I yeah. don't know. I don't know what makes them a triad or not. Oh, the movie you guys reviewed for Bring Your Own yeah. Popcorn? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Another noir tale. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what would you think, uh overall oh i loved it yeah it's absolutely amazing when i got to the last page because you never know is in the digital versions you never quite know when the last page is coming because you don't know how much back pages there are and i got to the last page and i literally like gasped out loud and was like oh no i know <laughs> i really <laughs> want to know what happened next and i was like damn it i thought there was, i thought we were i was like i didn't realize we were just leaving this on a cliffhanger I was like, God yeah damn it. <laughs> yeah no it's it's just really good like really artfully exploring noir from the perspective of the first chinese detective and great historical research was done and used in this artful way where it wasn't it didn't just like read like it was history they just sprinkled it in there but still brought all of these characters to life and Turn turn some tropes on their head and very noir in that you think things are going one way sometimes and they turn out to be something else. It's really good. And the art's great, too. This feels like a I mean, I know we just reviewed this book, but it feels like a good companion to Miss Marvel because it's really about trying to fit in America and its xenophobia and otherisms. Like it just I don't know. It just felt like I'm, I'm glad we read these two back to back. It just feels like companion books. Although part of it is really sad because of its accuracy, you can see how, oh, 1930s America versus Kamala Khan's, you know, modern America, and things haven't really changed that much. Sure, some of the racism is a little more subversive and not as overt, but it's still there. And the challenges that that immigrants have to face is still there. It's just, you know, maybe slightly changed, but there's a better face on it. Right. You know, like the the racism has a more friendly face. Yeah. Yeah. Final thoughts for you, Dennis? Well, I I think I said it all. It's great. Awesome book. I really enjoyed the story. It's another great example. I said this in many, many episodes, but this is great where you can have exposition woven throughout the story without a whole paragraph of things. 
where one character just spouts off lore. Uh, you can just sprinkle. I mean, this this sprinkle in history in a very fascinating way, showing how you know family trees can work and everything like that without you know combining the art with words, so that you weren't just bored to death looking at a wall of text. And yeah, and and it set up the mystery where it's like, oh, this seems artificial. No, it's you, it feels very organic and very detective like. And yeah, I I, I was upset at the cliffhanger at the end, but. <laughs> It's still very satisfying, and I definitely want to pick up the next volume. Oh, one more thing. That, one more thing I wanted to say that I really liked about it. Uh, I loved when we switched to Lucy's perspective. Like, all of a sudden, it was just like we were hearing her internal dialogue and mm, yeah. seeing uh, Eddie through her eyes and hearing her thoughts. So we were getting even more background on this universe that, we're, that we were in. I, I really loved that. By the way, a little bit of trivia, too. So that call center that she worked at where people call in and they transfer you to a different phone number. All those people had to memorize all the phone numbers. So that's Crazy. amazing to me. They're like, oh, you're wanting to call this person? Okay, let me, you know, hook you up to that line. And they would manually change the phone lines so that you were connected to whoever you were trying to call. So that's like nuts to me. Damn. That's what the operators did up until I think the 60s. Hello? That's so intense. I need KL5 <laughs> Beach 92. <laughs> I don't, I've seen John Wick. They're still doing it. <laughs> the realism of a john wick movie <laughs> another noir <laughs> oh that's assassin noir <laughs> well aubrey where can uh people follow you if they want to do that mixtape underscore majesty on twitter mixtape majesty on instagram where you can follow my podcast at bring popcorn pod on twitter or bring your own popcorn on instagram and what about this podcast dennis twitter and insta at gene explorers club Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. Bye! Bye.